Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And this is episode 91. It is a pleasure to be back with you on the podcast this week. It's all about catching you up with what I've been up to. There are a few things I wanted to have a chat with you about and maybe get your reaction on. And also, the listener comments have accumulated because we've had some special episodes in the last couple of weeks that have been lengthy and that haven't really permitted listener comments. And so we are not featuring any guests this week. We're just going to have a bit of a chat from me and a lot of chat from you. I also wanted to let you know that if you were thinking about subscribing to the Blindside group on groups.io, you've missed your chance. Sometimes you try things to complement the podcast and some things work and some things don't work or maybe they work in a different way from the way you were expecting. And in the case of the Blindside group on groups.io, I set that one up because I was hoping that it would be a way for people to continue the discussion about things that we were covering here on the Blindside podcast. And for a while, that's how it was. It began as a very effective complementary group to the podcast. But unfortunately, sometimes these lists do get off the rails and get hijacked. And that really did happen to that list. It became a general discussion list about all sorts of things uh, relating to blindness that we weren't discussing on the podcast. And there was, wasn't even any attempt being made by a number of the people who caused this to relate the discussion to the podcast at all. And so that's fine. We will move on. There are lots of other blindness discussion lists of a general nature out there. I had no interest in starting another one. And there are other ways, of course, that you can engage with the podcast, as you will hear. We're going to be playing a selection of the messages that we've received and the emails that have been sent to the blindside at mosin.org. So we get a lot of feedback that way about the podcast that we can actually use on the podcast. And maybe we will bring some sort of group back in the future and and possibly moderate it so that the comments that get approved do pertain in some way to a recent episode of the podcast or something that has come up on the podcast. Because what we were also finding was that as the list got more and more off track, genuine blindside podcast listeners were unsubscribing in droves and in large number. So got to try these things right and then you uh, move on if they don't work as you expect them to. Now, I know a lot of people who listen to the Blindside podcast are into technology and people ask me sometimes what I'm up to. And I've got a few things to catch you up on. If you're not interested in any of these topics, remember, if you are listening with a good podcast app that supports chapter marks, it's really easy to skip forward and back in this podcast by segment. Double tap the next chapter or previous chapter buttons to navigate around and I'll make sure that I segment this podcast carefully. So if one topic doesn't interest you, do feel free to skip to the next one. I know that your time is important. That said, you may remember that last year I was waffling on, ranting maybe, maybe some people would say ranting, about all the upheaval in our lives over the kitchen renovations. This was something very dear to Bonnie's heart. She has always said since she's been here at Mosin Towers that the kitchen needs attention. So we got that done and it's all very shiny and nice and sparkly. And actually, I must admit, just quietly, it's quite effective. You know, it's all, it's all, it seems like it's bigger now because the kitchen's better. And, but I do say to Bonnie, I say, Bonnie, I say, do you really think 
that the quality of the food we're getting is that much better given how much this kitchen costs. And she says, just eat your dinner, Jonathan. You know, so, uh, so we've we've got that one. Anyway, no point in fighting a battle that's already gone, right? It's a lovely kitchen, I must confess. But it does mean, and we also got the carpet finished. So now it means that um, it's my turn. And I've embarked on this project that I've really been wanting to get into in a serious way for a long time. And that is making our home a truly smart home. I guess you could say that because we've had Sonos for a while now, that's a kind of a smart home appliance, isn't it? Because you can send audio to different rooms and group rooms and you can make it play certain radio stations or playlists or whatever at certain times. And you can control it with a range of apps. I've written a book about this. It's called Sonosthesia and you can get it from the most consulting site. So it is pretty smart. But I wanted to go even further and do things like lights and, if possible, heating. Certainly we're doing security because we have a burglar alarm system that's about 10 years old now. And so we're just working with a consultant at the moment about updating that. And it's a really careful process, this, because you've got to make sure that if you're updating something like a security system, you're going to end up with an app at the other end that is fully accessible. So I've been demoing different kinds of apps It looks at this point that an app from Bosch is accessible enough to use. And the good thing about the Bosch security system app is that you can get it from the App Store and it has a demo mode. So you can put it in demo mode and have a play as if you were using a genuine security system and find out how well it works. And so far, that seems pretty promising. So we are going to get a Bosch security system installed. We're going to take out the security panel, the the control panel for the alarm that we currently have, but keep the wired sensors because we had our home wired for security about 10 years ago when wireless security systems were not as common and not as reliable. And since we have the infrastructure there, it makes sense to take advantage of that by updating the panel with something that is internet aware. Then outside, we are going for a Ring Video doorbell. And I've been talking to a few blind people who have these already. They say good things about the Ring Video doorbell. I think there may have been a period where there were some accessibility issues with the Ring Video doorbell. But from what people are telling me, that seems to be okay now. So the idea about this one is that I'm in the studio a lot, you know, during the day. And Bonnie at the moment is a full-time student. She is studying journalism. And it's really interesting, some of the things that she is doing. So often I'm down here, and if the doorbell goes, when I'm locked away in the studio, I don't hear the doorbell. And with the Ring Video doorbell, of course, you can get a push notification and a happy little chime on your phone whenever somebody rings the doorbell. What's even cooler is that you can then talk to the person, and you have a two-way video conference. That means that you can actually talk to someone at your door, no matter where in the world you are. So you could be out at the shopping center or you could be out on the other side of the world and you can still talk to someone and make it seem like you're just upstairs, but you don't have time to answer the door right now. If it's a courier, you can tell them to leave the package on the front step or whatever instruction you have for them. Then we're going on to the smart lock. And unfortunately for us, the door that we have at the moment will not support a smart lock. And so we're going to have to get a new front door. Bonnie's actually quite excited about getting a new front door and she's going to choose the new front door. And so that means that you can unlock and lock the front door with Siri and your Apple Watch and whatever you uh, choose to use. 
In embarking on this at the moment, I'm doing my best to make sure that everything we buy works with both Alexa and Siri. And that's sometimes possible and sometimes not. One of the challenges that I'm finding with this home automation project at the moment is that the number of HomeKit compatible accessories available in Australia and New Zealand is quite sparse because the big market for HomeKit appears to be the United States at the moment. And of course, the United States uses a different kind of socket, but a different kind of voltage as well. And so for a HomeKit developer to come to this part of the world, they've really got to make an effort. It's not even just a case of supporting the right voltage, which is used quite widely around the world. It's actually often supporting the correct kind of socket, especially for things like smart switches. So the one smart switch that's widely available here in New Zealand and from the Apple store is the Elgato one. And that seems to work quite well. And we have it for the Crock-Pot at the moment as part of my project. And so Bonnie can say to Siri, say at 11 o'clock when she's at university, she can just fire up Siri and say to it, turn on the Crock-Pot and the roast or whatever it might be in the Crock-Pot, it's all plugged in. And just saying turn on the Crock-Pot will power the switch on and start the process. So you can enable your wall outlets with these smart switches. They're not always going to be effective, though. For example, take a television. When you plug a television in and switch it on, it's in standby. It doesn't automatically turn the television fully on. For that, you need some even smarter technology. And we are working on that as well. What we have done, though, is automate the lights. And you may say, well, what on earth are you doing automating the lights? I tell you what, it is amazing how often young people walk out of rooms without turning off the lights when they have no intention of going back. Or, you know, now that our young people are getting older and they're living on their own or, you know, living in flats and things like that, sometimes they visit and they turn on the lights and that's fine. And then they finish their visit and they head off back to their flat with all the lights on. And I don't have any light perception at all. So this is a really cool thing about the home automation that I am enjoying. And it's also a, it seems to me at the moment anyway, a difference between the way that Alexa handles home automation and the way that Siri does. I've got my iPhone wound up here on the mixer and I'm going to turn the lights on here in the studio. I usually have them off. You know, it's it's early morning as I record this, but I don't benefit from having them on. So why waste the electricity? No one cares. I'm going to fire up Siri and just say, turn the lights on in the studio. Done. Let there be light, I tell you. Now, let's ask Siri this question. This is where it gets really cool. Is the studio light on? Your studio ceiling is on. Right. So now I can ask about the living room. Is the living room lights on? Your lights are off. Right, so we know the lights are off in the living room. That is incredibly handy. Unfortunately, my friend Alexa can't do that. So if I say, Alexa, is the studio light on? It just doesn't answer me. So I can say, though, Alexa, turn the studio light off. Okay. And it just acknowledges that it has. Now I can check in with Siri to make sure that Alexa has really done it. Not that I'm doubting Alexa for a moment, of course, but I can say, is the studio light on? Your studio ceiling is off. 
Okay, and the studio ceiling is off. We only have one light in the studio, actually, and that is in the ceiling. To do this so that you can control things remotely, you will need a hub. And I have explained this in some of my iOS without the iBooks as HomeKit has matured. We've been covering HomeKit all the way through from when it was introduced right through to now. And every year in the iOS without the iBooks, we have talked about HomeKit. So if you get them all, you've actually got a really good guide to how a blind person uses HomeKit. If you want to use things remotely, you do need some sort of hub. And that could be an iPad that always lives at home. Or typically for many people, it's the Apple TV, which can also act as a home hub for remote access. And so all this is happening through the Apple TV as the hub. And you can also get other hubs that might be necessary for specific things that you are installing relating to home automation. The lighting that we went with was Philips Hue. And we got that because the Hue app is very accessible, the native Hue app that you get with the lights. And it works with Alexa and HomeKit with, with Apple devices, which is what we use here. So it's all worked out really well. We have installed bulbs all over the place. Heidi, who of course was on the blind side a couple of weeks ago as part of the WWDC recap, and her husband, Henry, is my son-in-law now. I'm getting to grips with that. They came over and helped install all these lights all over the place. It was a huge project because this is not a small place. But now we have the lights uh, all automated in this way, and we love it. It's just so useful. Of course, you can also set up um, routines right now with the current version of iOS that is shipping. So you can say things like, good morning. And if you have a coffee maker plugged into a smart plug, for example, it might turn the coffee maker on. It might set certain lights to a certain level and a whole bunch of things. So you can string commands together. And I suspect that that will get even better with iOS 12 and the Siri shortcuts. I can envisage a situation where, for example, we might be able to say curry time to Siri and it will call the curry place and then turn on the outside lights because we're expecting a curry delivery. Or it might open a particular app that we order the curry with and help us to place an order and then turn the outside light on. So it's pretty cool. There are many benefits, I think, to blind people of having this stuff automated, particularly with things like lighting and heating, where you may not be able to tell if the light's on. You may not know definitively what temperature your heating is set to or what mode it is in and various other things like that. And, and when all said and done, it's just sort of fun and convenient. So I'm really enjoying this. I'm just getting started. It's great to get the lighting done. As part of this also, we did get a couple of Sonos ones. I've been avoiding doing this because we've got so much Sonos gear already, but we've swapped out uh, a couple of the Sonos Play ones that we had with Sonos ones. And the one thing I would say about that is that there are still some skills that the Sonos is not working with uh, in the context of Alexa. I hope they fix this because there's no real reason why they shouldn't be working. And one of them is the blindside skill. So you can't play the blind side on a Sonos One using Alexa. You can do it with an Amazon Echo device, but you can't do it with Sonos. So it's been a really interesting few weeks getting this home automation started, and we've got quite some way to go. Now, another technology-related news. You may remember that a few episodes ago on the Blind Side podcast, when Windows 10's April 2018 update came out, 
I did a bit of a demo of some of the new features for you. And particularly when it came to sound, I was pretty impressed because it allows you to assign different apps to different audio devices. So there are some things about this April 2018 update that would be quite handy for me in my work. What I found though, after having used it for quite a short time and taking my laptop to do things remotely, was that my battery life using the Windows 10 April 2018 update had plummeted. I mean, it had been cut by about 75%. So it was a phenomenal cut in battery life. I have a Toshiba Z30C or Z30C. A lot of people think that Toshiba have sort of disappeared from the market and largely they have for consumers, but they're still producing business laptops. I know that they've just sold their computer business to Foxconn. So who knows what will happen in future, but they have been until quite recently producing new computers for the business market. And there's now a successor to the Toshiba that I have. One of the things I really like about this machine is it's very fast, it's snappy. I usually get sort of 13, 14, even 15 hours of battery life, depending on what I'm doing. And it has the built-in LTE, which I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast before, because I love that. I love being able to just switch it on anywhere and not having to connect to dodgy public Wi-Fi and just use LTE anywhere. And I have a plan with my carrier where even if I travel overseas, I pay $5, a flat fee of $5 a day, and then I'm able to continue using the very extensive data that I have on my plan. I can make free calls in the country I'm in and back to New Zealand, and that's all for $5 a day. That is a lot less than you often pay at some hotels for Wi-Fi, and it's a lot less constricted and a lot more reliable and much more secure. So in general, I've been really delighted, very happy with this computer, and I'm recording this on it now. So I use it in the office as well. I have a docking station here. It just clips in and all my peripherals plug in, and it's just a really handy dandy machine. But as you can appreciate, I was a bit flummoxed. Flummoxed I was by why there had been the sudden deterioration in battery life. And I have this fundamental dilemma, you see. I like to play with these things and solve the problems, and I find the intellectual curiosity of it really stimulating, but I also have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of people who rely on me to produce things in a timely manner. So I decided that the best thing to do when I first installed this update back at the beginning of May was to uninstall it and go back to the previous version of Windows. One thing I must give Microsoft a lot of credit for is that the rollback process is really accessible, straightforward, and I've never had it not work. I'm knocking on the wood. I've never had it not work. So I just rolled back and continued on my merry way. And then, of course, we mentioned on the Daily Fiber Premium podcast last week that Windows 10 April 2018 update had been considered sort of ready for general availability now. Some of the kinks had been ironed out, and I thought, okay, over the weekend, I'll install it again and just see what happens. Well, I installed it again, and exactly the same thing happened. My fan was spinning up big time, and my battery life went down. So I had a bit of time over the weekend, and I thought, let's take a look at this. So I looked in the task manager. If you've got a situation like this, one of the first things that you should do is take a look at task manager and see if anything is eating your CPU big time. And sure enough, the Microsoft Windows Defender service, which I normally see hovering, you know, 8, 9, 10% at most of the CPU, was consuming 33% of my CPU, which is extraordinary. And that's what was causing the fan to spin up and the subsequent battery drain. 
So I called my buddies at the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk, and we're going to hear about the Disability Answer Desk later in this show as well. And I can't say enough positive stuff about the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. And this was an initiative that Kelly Ford, who used to work for Microsoft and has been on this podcast before, started. And as a blind guy, he did a fantastic job of training those initial people for the Disability Answer Desk and understanding how to talk to blind people about engaging with Windows. They understand basics of screen reading, and it's just a wonderful service that Microsoft offers. You can now, of course, also use the Disability Answer Desk through Be My Eyes, which is another really cool app. And you can just download the Be My Eyes and register for free. And the advantage, I don't really mind so much about the video, really, which you can have a, you can have a video call with a Microsoft agent at the Disability Answer Desk. But what I like is the really good audio quality. It makes a big difference because sometimes the VoIP connections that you get on those calls can be a little bit dodgy. And there's no numbers to remember. You can just go into the right section of the Be My Eyes app and call the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. So well done to both parties for making that happen. So I spoke to the Disability Answer Desk and we discussed a number of strategies. I did find a way of disabling Windows Defender. And then, of course, my computer came way back to normal. Um, I installed another virus checker and that seemed to make the problem worse again. When you get into this situation, the answer is to try a Windows reset. I'm sitting here scratching my head thinking, oh my goodness, you know, do I really have the time to do one of these resets, which would involve all third-party apps being deleted from my system, and I'd have to reinstall them, because there's no point in backing up your system and restoring from an image in a situation like this, because you're going to get the problem back again. So it's really a case of uninstalling everything, starting again and seeing if that solves the problem. And of course, there is no guarantee that it would. I guess there's some remote possibility that there's some weird interaction going on between this particular update of Windows and my particular hardware. Well, it just so happens that I was browsing the web on Saturday night, and I saw an ad. And it said, at a particular store I shop with regularly and and like, they had an insane special on a Microsoft Surface Book 2, well over $1,000 off. And of course, because this would be a business expense for me, because I rely in my business on computers, that means I get an extra 15% off because I'd get the goods and services tax back. So at that point, it was getting pretty attractive. Now, there's a lot of Surface devices. Microsoft do a few things called Surface. So let me just tell you what the Surface Book 2 is. This is the one that if you pick it up, It feels like a laptop because essentially it is a laptop. This is not the tablet. This has got a really nice keyboard to type on. It's got a screen that's very firmly hinged in place. And to all intents and purposes, it's a laptop. But then on the top right of the keyboard, the second key from the right hand side, there's a key that you press. And when you press it, when it's powered on, you hear this audible click. And then you can yank the screen off it and it becomes a standalone tablet. And you can then use the device as a tablet. So it's a kind of unique two-in-one concept that others have actually subsequently emulated since the Surface Book did this. The specs were good. It was a 13-inch screen. I don't want any bigger than that because it's wasted on the likes of me. It had the i7 processor, a pretty current, I think, generation of i7 
processor, 16 gigs of RAM, and a terabyte of glorious solid-state storage. So I called Heidi, who's my geek partner in crime on these sorts of things. We love to go computer shopping and tech shopping together. And I said, Bonnie and I are going to have a look. I'm not committing myself, but Bonnie and I are going to have a look and play with this thing in the store. And I wondered if you'd like to come. And she said, yeah, I'll come. So she jumped on a train and met us in the city. And we went to have a look at this Microsoft Surface Book 2. I played with it in the store. One of the really nice things about narrator's maturity these days is that you can you can walk up to any Windows PC. Normally when you go to a store and they're on display, these Windows PCs are in retail mode. And from there, it is possible to press Control, Windows, Enter and get narrator to fire up so you can hear what the speakers are like. And it sounded pretty good in the store. And I arrowed around and it seemed responsive enough. And I thought, well, I'll give this some thought. We do what we normally do before a really big decision. We all went off to lunch and had a bite to eat and thought about it. And then I went down and I said, I I think I will do this because I don't think I'll see a special like this again for ages, you know, well over a thousand bucks off this thing. And it's a pretty premium product. And then we got just within the foot of the store. And I said to Heidi, you know, I don't think I am going to do this. I'm just just, I just don't feel ready. I'm going to miss the LTE. Also, there's no dedicated home end page up and page down key on the Surface Book 2. However, you can press F9 and F10. And uh, then I think the, the next two keys for page up and page down for home end, page up and page down. And you can press it with the function key. One thing that is really neat about what Microsoft have done with the Surface Book 2 is that there's an FN key lock. What that means is if you are a screen reader user, chances are good that you want the function keys to perform their regular function. And so often now, laptops use those function keys for their own purposes. Things like adjusting the brightness or turning Wi-Fi on and off and maybe even media controls like play and pause. And on some laptops, getting them to use their traditional function function is a real bear. With the Surface Book and the Surface products in general, you can just tap the FN key. So if you just hold down the FN key and press the key, then it does the other thing. If your function keys are set to perform the regular function, then holding down FN and pressing a key will perform the system-specific function. But if you tap the key, then it automatically toggles until you tap it again, and it remembers it between reboots. So that's a very elegant solution, and it doesn't make the lack of a dedicated home and end key too bad, but it's a, it's a little bit annoying. Anyway, so I, I decided I wouldn't do it, and then we went away, and we were nearly getting ready to go home, and I said, oh, God, I, I'm going to do this after all. So Heidi made all sorts of rude noises about me vacillating. I'm not normally indecisive, and um, as you'll hear, I think the, the, the lesson I've learned is that sometimes you should just trust your gut instinct if something doesn't feel right about a purchase. So I went back, pulled the plug, made the decision that I would buy one of these Surface Book 2s at the crazy price. When we got it home, the first thing I noticed was how slowly it was updating. I know that there are often a lot of Windows updates that have to be installed when you get a machine out of mothballs, as it were. And this was running the 1709 build, so the previous build of Windows, and it had to update that. But it was taking an age to update. And we've got a gigabit 
fiber connection here. So things normally from Microsoft, they go whoosh, you know, they, they normally come down very, very quickly. And I couldn't understand what was going on with that, but we let it do its thing, crawling along. When we got everything up and running, and even installing Office seemed to be taking forever. You know, we put Office 365 on the laptop and just trying to get things up and running as quickly as possible. So things were crawling. I noticed that screen reading was pretty unresponsive as well. And I did find a solution to this. And I pass it on to you in case you ever decide to get a device like this. My initial thinking was, the system is running slow because maybe there's some weird power plan in effect. And what you would normally do is go into the power settings and you'll find a series of power plans that you can choose from. Normally there are three set up in Windows and there's one called high performance. And so setting it to high performance normally lets the machine strut its stuff and you can find out whether the battery compromise of high performance is worth it or not. Well, I went in and there was no high performance option available on the Surface Book 2. There was only a balanced plan and that was the only option that was there. So I thought that was weird. I did a bit of um, Googling around. I should have been binging, shouldn't I? Because it's a Microsoft product. But I was doing some Googling around and I found that in recent versions of the Surface firmware, what you can do is you can double click on the battery icon that sits in your system tray. And of course, there are two batteries that are combined in this icon because the tablet part has its own battery and the laptop part has its own battery. So I double clicked on this and I could see the individual batteries and then there was a slider and the slider was set at 33% because Jaws speaks them as percentages, which is kind of mm, not super slow, but it's kind of towards the lower end of the spectrum in terms of favoring battery life over performance. But what was staggering to me was that the power performance slider, so there's a battery one and a power one, and the power one was set all the way to 0%. I don't know whether this is some sort of bug, but when I cranked the slider up to 100%, things started happening a lot more quickly. You know, downloads were faster, installation was obviously a lot faster. So at that 0% setting, obviously there is some serious CPU throttling going on to try and conserve energy. So that was that problem solved. Uh, I had a number of other very strange issues with this device. And the reason why, by the way, I opted for the Surface Book 2, which is not by any means the cheapest game in town, was my logic was, okay, well, this has come from Microsoft. And so if I am going to be working with regular Windows updates and it's in my interest to be able to work with these new updates, surely getting a device direct from Microsoft would be the way to go because presumably things are tested well on these devices by Microsoft themselves and there should be maximum compatibility. So that was my logic in going for the Surface. It's also pretty sort of sexy hardware. It's not the lightest though by any means. If you want light, you'd want to go with something like the HP Spectre or the Huawei MateBook 10, which is an amazing machine. It, it definitely was much heavier than my Toshiba. But once I started actually having applications set up and I started doing some work, like I would, I got to the point where I had office working and I was writing Word documents and I was writing email with it. I'm thinking I'm making really good progress. I got a little Surface Dock for it. So all my peripherals had plugged into this Surface Dock. It had wired Ethernet, you know, and um, USB ports and 
all those good things that you need. And it, it, it essentially turned it into a desktop. So I got that for the office. We're making good progress. I had Reaper and uh, Studio Recorder and a lot of tools already set up. I was rocketing along with this thing. And then I was sitting on the couch writing documents. I'm actually working on iOS 12 without the eye right now, as you can appreciate. And I was writing this and I thought, this is really sluggish. I don't understand what's happening here. It is so sluggish. It's horrible. And then I realized what was happening. What was happening was that if you left the audio device alone for as short a time as maybe five, perhaps 10 seconds, somewhere between five and 10 seconds, then the sound card would essentially hibernate. And I presume they do this to further conserve energy. What that means is that when you press a key on your screen reader, and it doesn't matter what screen reader it is, when you press a key, it takes about... Hmm, Hard to know when you're, when, you're, when you're really conscious of latency, perhaps three quarters of a second to a second to get a response from your screen reader because the sound card has to wake up. And I don't have any keyboard echo turned on at all on my computer because I've been touch typing since I was eight and I don't need it. So I turn all my echo off and I just type. But if I want to query the current line or read the window title, then I press a key and JAWS, in my case, speaks. Well, it was taking a wee while to respond and it was definitely noticeable to me, just really annoying. I did a bit of Googling on this too. And interestingly enough, a sighted person was complaining about this and saying that it was relating to the Realtek audio drivers that a lot of these devices are now using including the Surface Book 2 and possibly the other devices in the Surface family. Now, he suggested that what you can do, and I know some people having talked on Twitter about this, and I'll come to that in a second. He suggested that what you can do in some cases is to install generic Microsoft drivers. So you, you essentially go and do a driver update and you pick the Microsoft drivers that are generic and you may lose some functionality but you will also lose that horrible powering down of the sound card well on the surface book 2 all the generic microsoft drivers i tried would not work it would cause the sound device to just disappear entirely even after a restart i then went and i downloaded the latest realtek device drivers from the website in case that made a difference and it didn't i subsequently learned that it may be possible to do a registry tweak to get rid of this setting, which is pretty scary stuff. Um, but if you really have this problem and you want to get rid of it, you may be able to do a registry tweak if you're careful about that. Of course, there are other ways around this. A couple of blind people that I talked to about this were so frustrated by it that they'd invested all this money in a new laptop, not just a Surface, but in one of these laptops with these drivers, that they have a media player that's always running in the background with a blank file. They basically record four or five seconds of silence, put it on loop, and that keeps the sound card awake. It's ridiculous that we as blind people have to go to these sorts of lengths just to get an efficient screen reading experience. Someone else has actually developed a piece of software that you run in your system tray. It sits in the system tray in the background and it essentially just pipes silence to the sound card so that the sound card doesn't go to sleep. 
you could connect an external USB sound card to your computer, but that's another peripheral that you have to carry around, which to my mind is not ideal. You know, the whole idea of a laptop is that you're self-contained. You have this thing on your lap and you can get on with it. You may be able to use a USB headset. In my case, I cannot because I have the audio piped directly to my hearing aids and I can't wear headsets easily because of the behind the ear hearing aids that I use, nor should I have to in my view. I suppose you could use a Bluetooth speaker, but Bluetooth also has uh, some inherent latency of its own. So I think that it's really important that Realtek fix their driver. We have enough challenges as it is trying to be productive, working our way around busy applications. To have the sound card shut down so quickly and take a discernible amount of time to wake up is not an optimal experience for a competent screen reader user. If you're the kind of person that has keyboard echo on all the time, well, maybe it will affect you less. But even in that case, you may still want to stop and think. And what will happen is when you then press your next key, whatever that key is, you'll notice a lag. Now, interestingly, I got on Twitter and I raised this and a lot of people got back to me publicly and privately and said, you know, you're right. I haven't really thought about it much, but it's doing it and it has annoyed me. So hopefully we will be able to find some way of getting together and asking Realtek to fix this issue or at least offer some sort of user interface toggle where you can turn this off. If there are battery implications of turning it off, then I suppose it's fair enough that maybe the default should be on, but it shouldn't involve doing something complicated like going into regedit to turn something so important to screen reader users off. From the comments that I've heard from people, I understand that some Lenovo, Dell, and HP, at least, devices that are coming out right now are affected by this. And I'm really disappointed because we went through a phase some years ago in the early stages of screen reading in Windows, and you may well remember this if you've been around as long as I have, where you did have to be careful about what you bought. Remember Dr. Jaws? Dr. Jaws would inspect your system and check for video card compatibility because of the way that JAWS then had to hook into your video to give you screen reading. And largely, I thought those days were behind us because these days there are tools like UI automation and newer ways of hooking into video that really make screen reading much easier. But if we are going to have to be careful about the laptops we buy because of the sound devices or drivers that they're using, then that is a big step backwards. And I also want to throw down the gauntlet a bit where Microsoft is concerned, because I think this is a test, as far as I'm concerned anyway, about whether Microsoft is really going to walk the accessibility talk. Now, I did call the Disability Answer Desk. The person I spoke with was really professional and courteous, and he immediately decided that it was necessary to escalate this, and I appreciate that. He was able to determine that I was describing the symptoms very clearly and that it wasn't a, a simple thing. And within, oh, I'd say about 27, 28 hours of me making that initial call, I was in email dialogue with someone from Microsoft at a higher level in the escalation stakes. So that is really impressive that Microsoft would get back to me in such a timely manner. And I also did hear really quickly from somebody who looks after some audio aspects of things 
at Microsoft even yesterday, within an hour or two of logging my support request. So that is really fantastic. But now the question is, you know, they've been able, they tell me they've been able to duplicate the problem as I've outlined and I've given them step by step. The question is, what are they going to do about this? Because to my mind, it's not acceptable that the Windows operating system is having these drivers installed all over the place. First of all, the Surface line is Microsoft's own brand. So in my view, Microsoft does have the resources to either force Realtek to fix this, which would be my preferred option, because then everybody using non-Microsoft branded hardware would benefit from the fix too. All those blind people with Dells and Lenovo's and HP's and other devices that may be affected because real tech is everywhere. So on the software side, I'd like to think Microsoft would step in and say, listen, we're committed to accessibility. You cannot have these drivers uh, installing in Windows that create such a poor accessibility experience. But when it comes to the Microsoft hardware, this is their brand. They are committed, they say, to accessibility. So if they need to, they surely do have the resources to offer an alternative driver or to rip these drivers out in future updates and put something better that they have created. And they do have the resources to do that. If you have one of these devices where you notice after a bit of a pause and you touch the keyboard and um, everything else is awake. It's not that the screen's gone to sleep or anything like that, which will happen after a few minutes of inactivity. But if you've got a machine where you find that just after a few seconds of not touching it, everything else is awake, but it takes a while for the sound card to respond, then I urge you to contact the place that manufactures your PC and also Realtek directly. And let's try and put some pressure on them to get this fixed. In the meantime, I'm reminded of that lovely lyric from Don Henley, and maybe Glenn Fry wrote it too. It seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table, but you only want the ones that you can't get. I have returned the Surface Book 2. I'm using my Toshiba Z30C very happily, and maybe I think what I will do is hold out until the next big update to Windows. If that causes the same issue, of the fan spinning way up and my battery life depleting, I will bite the bullet and do a complete reset and a reinstall. In the meantime, I'm sure I'll survive. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosin.org. And of course, you can also use our feedback line, that number there, 719-270-5114 in the United States. 719-270-5114. A lot of listener feedback to catch up on, so we will play a selection of it now. If we don't get to yours, we can't play it all, I'm afraid, because, boy, there's a lot of it, and I appreciate that. Let's go then and have a look at this first issue, which was raised by a listener relating to whether it is appropriate for people. There's my Apple Watch. Shall I stand? No, I think I'd rather talk to you. Is it appropriate for somebody to be blindfolded when they have some usable vision? And we have some really interesting comments on this, starting off with an email from Merv Kick, who says, Hi, Jonathan. In 1992, I had a great deal of usable vision. I mostly used my white cane outside for identification, like as a security blanket when I crossed streets. I didn't really know how to use it. My state blindness and visual services sent me to the Greater Pittsburgh Guild for the Blind, 
which at that time was located in Bridgeville, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. They made me wear a blindfold for everything, eating, sorting money, walking, dining, using a computer, which at that time was DOS 5.5. Ah, yes. I loved every minute of it, because I knew that one day I would not be able to take the blindfold off. I asked for extra mobility lessons. I eventually finished all of the independent living classes and worked up to five mobility classes five days a week, even in the snow. My final exam was to wear a blindfold placed on a random street in a town I had only been in a few times wearing a blindfold and find my way home. And I did it. There was an excellent mobility instructor watching my every move, but I pretended I didn't know that. Three years ago, I lost my usable vision. I'm still learning to be blind. And while I am, for lack of a better description, relieved to a certain extent, for the first time in my life, not to be caught between two worlds, where the sighted thought of me as blind and the blind thought I was sighted, so I didn't fit in anywhere, I am very grateful for that training at the Guild, because now that the blindfold doesn't come off, I still fall back on that training. I am still adjusting psychologically to not having vision, but having those skills from 1992 was a major advantage for me. Hello, Jonathan. This is Lynette. I'm calling to give my feedback on the sleep shade versus not using a sleep shade um, in uh, a training centers. I think it depends on how much sight you've got. Um, again, if you're low vision, if it's not, if it's, anyway, if it's not really usable, they shouldn't worry about it. I can understand if you have a, a if, if the doctors or if you've been told or if they've been told that your sight might diminish, I can see them being concerned about that. However, I don't think they should be need, they should be used for, for most cases. Um, I had to use one and I, was just out of high school and I fought it. So um, it did not do me any good <laughs> because I was too busy fighting the stupid sleep shade. So anyway, um, I'm totally against it in most circumstances. I know there are different circumstances, but um, so no, I don't like them. John Wesley Smith has written in and called in to tell us about his success with the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk and how patient they were at resolving an issue, which in the end was related to an app that he installed on his system. And sometimes you just got to be careful, right, that uh, there, can, there can be some weird interactions, but he was very happy with the service he got from the Disability Answer Desk, so that's good. But he also says... I'm a proponent of sleep shades for partially sighted rehab students because it's the only real way to learn how inefficient and unreliable one's vision can be. Learning how to do these things without vision is more important and necessary than one with sight realises. Debbie Armstrong says a person losing their vision should be using sleep shades when learning to travel independently, but not on every trip every day. They should be using the vision they have to help, especially in situations like crossing busy streets, where safety is a concern. Then they can focus in safer situations on working under blindfold to bring out the ability to pay closer attention to what they hear. 
Think if you were a cane user about occasionally using that cane with the non-dominant hand, just in case your dominant hand is injured. Doesn't that make sense? But it would be kind of silly to use the cane constantly with your non-dominant hand. Think about using both speech and braille with your screen reader. Would you choose to use only one method if you have access to both? Of course not. But you can be more efficient if you practice using only braille or only speech. I use a guide dog and have done so for over 40 years. But every week I walk across the 112-acre campus where I work using my cane. And I always try to find a new restroom in a building with which I'm unfamiliar. It's uncomfortable, but I only do it once a week because there's no reason to suffer, but plenty of reasons to step outside my comfort zone. I know many people who use a power wheelchair for regular travel, but can still use crutches or a manual wheelchair where necessary. I know people who prefer their manual wheelchair, but use a power model for longer trips. The idea here is balance striving to become unafraid to try something new and not getting locked into only one method of navigating. Thanks for the comment, Debbie. You've raised an interesting question for me, though. You talk about a dominant hand for your cane. See, I don't have one. I regularly swap hands with my cane on a trip. If I'm walking along and my right hand is tired, I just swap it over to the left hand and keep going, and I don't notice any difference. I wonder how common or uncommon... That is, never thought about it before. Hmm. Here is Mario who says, Hi Jonathan, regarding blindfolding visually impaired individuals while they receive training for blind IL skills, while I understand the concept, I think it alienates and even hinders their progress because they are forced in performing some task in a way they are not accustomed. I realise they may become legally or even totally blind, And the training with a blindfold will prevent them for if they lose more vision. But they should be able to or allowed to perform the task with whatever sight they still possess. If they ever do become blind, they will be able to cope better and innovate when they have to perform a particular task. Hey Jonathan, hey everyone on the blind side, this is Sean Williams. I want to talk about the... Top 10 thoughts, Jonathan, that you had stated in the recent podcast that you posted on the blind side. And I'd like to share my, my experience with your first thought. And I totally agree with the first number one top 10 thing that you want addressed. And the reason being is because I have spoken to Apple individuals myself. I have said, look, let's say that a sighted, let's, let's say iOS was released and you could not type quickly on a keyboard. This is, I'm referring to when there was a braille bug. I know that not not everyone is a braille reader, and I, I accept that. But for those of us who are, this was an issue in iOS 11 when it first came out. I said, let's say that uh, 
the sighted couldn't type very fast. There would be news, there would be field days of news reports that say, that would say something like, Oh, Apple, uh, released iOS 11. Uh, individuals cannot type, uh, very, uh, efficiently. And, uh, yeah, the media would have a field day about this. And I said, do, do you think, you know, this, this isn't acceptable. This needs to be changed. So I agree, Jonathan. Constructive complaints should be made to uh, Apple, but done so, as I've just stated, in a constructive manner. Good afternoon, Jonathan. This is Petra, and I am a premium subscriber. I got to listen to the live uh, recording of The Blind Side, and previously we hoped that there might be news about a new iPhone SE. Did they not mention that? So we don't know or don't think one is coming. That was what I was curious about. Great program. Thank Heidi for her help. And um, I have several of Janet's books already, and I'll probably be getting more, as well as yours. Good on you, Petra. No, there was no mention of hardware this year at WWDC. Sometimes there is. They haven't announced a new iPhone at WWDC for a long, long time now. They've moved those to the September events, but there have been pretty persistent rumors that an updated iPhone SE of some kind is in the wild and that we may get to see that before the next big iPhone reveal in September of this year. Some people say it's just going to be the exact same iPhone SE case with some updated technology in it. Others say they're going to go all out with uh, maybe Face ID and possibly no headphone jack, which I know will make some people very disgruntled. Nobody's ever gruntled. Have you, have you, nobody's ever rung up the blind side gruntled. Let's get a gruntled listener on here. Anyway, uh, no, so no hardware mention at all. Usually they pop up with a Mac or two at the WWDC event, but they've made it all software. And perhaps that's a realignment. Perhaps it will be all software from now on at WWDC. But the iPhone SE or its replacement could drop at any time. So certainly... If that happens, we'll be covering it here extensively on The Blind Side. And thank you so much for subscribing to The Daily Fiber, Petra. I really appreciate that. Hello, Jonathan. My name is Terrell. And I would like to say that I did hear your your podcast on what's new in iOS 12. A couple of things that I would like to comment on. Uh, one thing that you said was that you had uh, you were struck by the fact that accessibility was not mentioned and a question in that regard uh, with Google and Microsoft both mentioning accessibility a lot as you said in their developers conference do you feel that now that accessibility is being more uh, included in in things and in, in Google and Microsoft do you feel like that Apple is taking a back seat? Uh, the second thing I would like to comment on is that I would really like to see Apple innovate in the live TV space. Um, you know, you have services like uh, YouTube TV, Hulu Live, things like that. But I feel it's really high time for Apple to 
innovate here. Thanks very much for the call, Terrell. And to answer the question you asked me, no, I think that while as consumers we are entitled to, and I think actually have an obligation to, make suggestions about the, the kind of things we'd like to see in products, you only need to look at all that Apple has achieved to know that they are actually still leading the pack. I think what's happening is that Microsoft and Google are following Apple's lead. When they started developing these accessible products in-house where you could just buy a piece of technology, take it out of the box the same way that a sighted person can and make it go, that was really significant. And so Apple are a long way ahead still and the others are playing catch-up. It is wonderful that you can get really good quality screen reading. Everything has its foibles and nothing is perfect, of course, but you can get good quality screen reading on every, every product that Apple produces. Take it out of the box. There's normally a pretty consistent way to get it going, involving triple pressing of something, and then you're up and running independently. No sighted assistance required to set up. So I think that Apple's commitment to accessibility is absolutely unwavering. Hello, Jonathan Mosen. This is Robert E. Lee out of Colorado one more time. I wanted to give you some feedback on episode 88, the wishing and hopping, as my voiceover stated. Um, The episode uh, was wonderful feedback regarding your wish list. I was very pleased with you giving feedback about uh, people's wishes and then providing feedback saying what was capable right now. Although at Rebecca Skipper's comment, which is very near the end, 58 minutes and 55 seconds into the the episode, I noticed that she had asked for haptic support. She wanted the ability to have uh, different ringtones for the different events that occurred on her phone, such as a phone call, an email, or a text. And this currently exists, at least on my iPhone 5 SE edition. Uh, This phone has custom capabilities running iOS 11.3. So I went into uh, settings, sounds, and then uh, under, say, ringtone, you go into ringtone, and at the very top it says vibration pattern. You can go into vibration pattern, and there are six presets and the ability to customize, make your own custom pattern. There are eight different categories which you can do this for, including incoming phone calls, new voicemails, email, text, uh, reminders, and calendar events are separate, separate, can all have separate haptic vibration patterns. Hey, Jonathan, it's Marvin Rush, and I just listened to um, your interview with Neil, yours. That was wonderful. It was a great thing to listen to. Um, I've never personally met Neil, but I've known that even for a long time because of all the blind cool tech things that he did and his music and all that. And I also listened to your podcast about Marlene and Lieberg. And that was, you know, it made me think of a lot of things that's happened 
you know, back when we all started ACB Radio Interactive, all that good stuff, back when we were, some of us were doing shows on dial-up, and, you know, it just sort of made it, it I, you know, got to go down memory lane. Um, and I got to, to meet Marlena at uh, a couple conventions and uh, sit down and have drinks with her and Gary. So that was a neat thing to do, to do. And I hope you and Bonnie are doing well and keep doing what you do. Hi, Jonathan. This is EZ Cleghorn in Warner Robins, Georgia, in the States. And I wanted to take a minute to get your opinion and possibly open this up for more listener comments on the various library services that we have in the blindness community. Now, I know that you don't subscribe to your uh, Blindness Foundation's library service in New Zealand, and you have stated in the past that um, you felt like there, if if I remember correctly how you put it, there really wasn't a lot of need for these kind of services anymore because we now can pay for things with iBooks and Audible and why would we want to be given books just because we're blind and not pay for them? My contingent on that is that I think that it's very necessary because if sighted people have a library that they can go to and check out a book we should have the same in the community that we don't have to pay for. And we should have the same material available to us. Maybe, maybe, um, things like NLS should, like, time it, and then you have to download the book again. I don't know. but That doesn't really matter. Um, maybe that would make it a little bit more to your liking. I, I don't really know. But, um... I don't see that services like Bookshare, which you um, said that some people described as like a Netflix for books, I don't see that being a big issue either because it's very useful as an educator myself. It's very useful to be able to have a resource of ebooks that are free because you can't even imagine how much money would be spent if it was having to get braille books or having to buy audiobooks per student. And I don't even work with blind students and I, I'm just, that would be ridiculous um, and unnecessary when there's organizations that we can pay, we as educators can pay an annual fee to and be able to have access to all the material that a student could possibly need or even want. And I think that's a very important distinction as well. I think the popular literature titles totally... Like, I suppose the argument could be made that the popular literature titles shouldn't be included and it should just be textbooks. That's completely ludicrous as well. I, I, I feel like we should have complete access in a library-style format rather than having to spend money because there are a lot of, especially children and most adults in the blindness community because the unemployment rate is so high who can't afford to spend the money on books but still should be able to enjoy them and be able to read. So I think these services are absolutely vital and I really hope that they don't end up going anywhere anytime soon. 
Well, thanks for the comment, which I think is somewhat being quoted a bit out of context. I know that in interviews with people like Judy Dixon and when we had somebody on from Benetech who do Bookshare, sometimes you ask questions that are designed to tease people out, to provoke a bit of an answer. You play a bit of a devil's advocate role. Now, that said, I think this is an interesting topic to discuss in quite a wide context. First of all, what's our objective? And I would have thought that our objective as blind people is to be included with the same rights and responsibilities as everybody else. So it is true that your local public library has got a vast majority of its content in a form that is inaccessible to us. Wouldn't it be better for your local public library to be refactored so that they truly are inclusive of everybody? It's a little bit of a different situation in the United States because the library there is taxpayer funded, the Library of Congress. And of course, sometimes it comes under threat. In many other countries, blindness services are funded by donation. And sometimes funding can be pretty precarious, depending on what other causes, if you will, are competing for that funding. So there is no guarantee that accessible format libraries are going to get funding in many countries. So in that regard, it's a bit of an anomaly. You know, the the US, with its rehab system and library system, is extensively reliant on government and taxpayer funding. But what if money was spent on making the world's books truly accessible? Now, there is some work, of course, going on with Google Books, and I'm not strictly sure at this point where that's at, and maybe some listeners will have some information for me on this. But if all of the books in the world were scanned and made available in a form that was 100% accessible to a blind person, and those books were available both for purchase and for borrowing from a local public library, there wouldn't be a need for accessible format libraries to exist. And surely that would be a goal to aim for, where you could use your public library fully in the same way that everybody else, because a lot of the people behind these special format libraries or accessible format libraries talk about what they call the book famine. And they make the point that I think it's about 1% of the world's books are accessible to blind people at the moment. So while we can take some books and read them in accessible formats. The majority of books are not available to us unless we get them from a public library and scan them ourselves. Is that a status quo we're happy with? I would have thought we should be striving for something a bit better than that and aiming towards much more content being accessible through the same channels that everybody else uses. It is, I think, a bit of a difficult argument to make to say that because blind people are unemployed, they are entitled to access things for free from Bookshare. Does that necessarily mean then that many sighted people who are unemployed should also be entitled to access the same content from Bookshare? Now, the argument, of course, is, well, no, because they can go to their local public library. But maybe a long-term strategy, and I'm not saying shut these libraries down tomorrow, of course, but maybe a long-term strategy should be, well, we should be able to access that wealth of content too. Not the 1%, but the entire library. While I'm on a roll with this, let me draw a parallel. Let's say that somebody builds a building and it's not accessible to somebody in a wheelchair. Is it appropriate to say, well, somebody in a wheelchair can go to a special building 
designed for someone in a wheelchair and get the same services maybe at a discounted rate and that takes care of the problem. I draw this analogy because I wonder whether the current system lets the publishers off the hook too readily. The publishers can now, with new titles, provide them to services like accessible format producers and essentially wash their hands of the problem. So they don't necessarily have to be responsible for making sure that an accessible format version of their title is available in the stores or at the public libraries. So in essence, we are letting them off the hook. In just about every other walk of life, it is the responsibility of the creator of the thing, whether that thing be a building or a service, to be accessible. So wouldn't it be better to insist that the copyright holder make that accessible version available universally in all places, be it public libraries or bookstores? This is why I think that the increasing use of iBooks, or now called Apple Books and iOS 12 and Kindle, is potentially quite exciting. It's Debbie Armstrong in California, and I wanted to share an interesting mode of narrator that many Windows 10 screen reader users may not know about. It's called developer mode, and you invoke it with shift caps lock F12. So when you press the shift and the caps lock together with F12, developer mode turns everything on the screen off that is invisible to narrator. Now this is strictly a visual feature, but if you're working with a sighted developer, you press shift caps lock F12, and all of a sudden they can only see on screen what you see through narrator. By making objects that are invisible to narrator, invisible to sighted people, you can give them the screen reader experience without them having to struggle to listen to the voice. Another cool thing I've done, and here's a great plug for Jonathan's Meet Me Accessibly book, is use the Zoom software to make screen recordings once I've turned this feature on, and I can email these videos to developers to show them exactly what's going on with their software that is accessible and is not accessible. Woo, we got through a dozen comments, and I think I'm going to stop at this point. But thank you so much for all of them. It's been great. And if you would like to make a contribution, you can drop me an email to theblindside at mosin.org. That is the email address. You can attach an audio clip, as a few people there have done, or you can write something down, and I will read it back. You can also call the listener line if you would like. That is a U.S. number. That number, again, is 719-270-5114. That's 719-270-5114. 5114. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.